Blog Talk Radio. In 1992, the Food and Drug Administration decided that genetically modified organisms were the functional equivalent of conventional foods. They arrived at this decision without testing GMOs for allergenicity, toxicity, antibiotic resistance, and functional characteristics. The aim of the seed industry is a trillion dollars of profits from royalties every year. And the aim is no farmer should have access to their own seed. Aim is every farmer should be forced into the market every year. All across our country, our people are becoming more and more conscious about the foods that they are eating and the foods that they are serving to their kids. And this is certainly true for genetically engineered foods. Americans have a right to know if their food is genetically engineered. Hello and welcome to Mad Science, the Genetic Crossroad. I am your host, Anna Kavanaugh, and I want to thank you for joining me for the broadcast tonight. Beyond Conspiracy Boy, there are numerous theories passed around out there about the allegedly sinister objectives of the corporate biotech machine, so much so that it's difficult to know what to really believe. Are there wealthy organizations using biotechnology for a more sinister agenda? Is the public being manipulated and kept from the truth? Some activists and conspiracy theorists are making frightening claims, but we must go beyond the conspiracy theory to find out what's really going on. The biotech industry and their GMOs have undergone so much scrutiny over the years and have been the subject of several conspiracy theories, theories claiming there is much more going on behind the scenes than any of us could ever realize. There are claims that international corporations and the wealthy elite that own and run them have a deeper agenda that includes population control, domination of the global food supply, direct manipulation of the weather, establishing a one-world government, implementing black operations, and the intentional derailing of natural human evolution. But how much of this is mere propaganda for the sake of stirring up fear and excitement, or to funnel support and money toward extremist activist groups? In this day and age, where travel so quickly and so certain claims made by a very small handful of people can propagate instantaneously throughout the World Wide Web, but at the same time, how much of the bits and pieces floating around actually do have basis in truth? And if they are true, what are the implications of these things? This is a disturbing subject we'll be talking about tonight, and how exactly real it may be. How much are we being influenced without our knowledge? What changes may be coming, and how soon will they arrive? What has been going on already, right underneath our noses? Do the conspiracy theories surrounding the food industry, and specifically those associated with GMOs, hold water? Let's begin with something called the Codex Alimentarius. Now, it may sound like something out of a movie involving secret societies, but the Codex Alimentarius is a very real thing that has been around for quite a while. It's basically managed by the Food and Agriculture Organization, which is an arm of the United Nations, and is an international set of standards, guidelines, and recommendations that relate to food production and safety. This seems harmless enough, 
But because these standards have such a far-reaching influence on food trading worldwide, it is fraught with opportunities for corruption. Because of this, Codex Alimentarius has been viewed suspiciously as a tool for big business to price-fix markets around the world. They say that the UN gives special priority and privilege to large companies as they operate internationally. Now, although these claims have been downplayed by the UN, it is actually known beyond a doubt that the Codex Alimentarius Commission is heavily influenced by these powerful industries, which includes food, biotech, and pharmaceuticals. There are several documented cases where smaller countries with less voting power are forced to concede to the wishes of powerhouse countries such as the U.S. and Great Britain who have their own agenda. On the world stage, this has involved using the Codex to approve many GM foods, chemical food additives, pesticide residues, synthetic hormones, and other unhealthy food components. Now it's through the application of Codex International Policies that large corporations with considerable clout are able to access the resources around the world that would normally not be available to them. They use this to set up agricultural systems that force small farmers to become dependent on them. Since the economies of many smaller countries are based on the production from these farmers, entire countries fall victim to this cycle of dependence as well, all under the guise of agribusiness companies wanting to help. And one example of this was the devastating 2010 earthquake in Haiti. Chemical agribusiness giant Monsanto used the misfortune and devastation to this country as an opportunity to donate several tons of their GM seeds, chemical fertilizers, and pesticides to farmers. Monsanto is internationally known for aggressively pushing its GMO seeds and requiring farmers to sign technology agreements, technology agreements for farming seeds. In many cases, farmers are not always made fully aware of what it is they're signing, and as such find themselves forced to buy Monsanto seeds each year after each year at high cost. In the case of the Haitian farmers, they were able to recognize the trap being set and unanimously rejected the Monsanto gift by burning the supplies. There has also been some controversy regarding individuals who may or may not have participated in the establishment of Codex Alimentarius. Many anti-Codex organizations have asserted that Nazi war criminals, Fritz Mir and Hermann Schmitz in particular, were principal architects of the organization. But because many of these claims are made with only indirect evidence or no evidence at all, one might be tempted to disregard them at first glance. However, as the allegations have gained more attention, the Codex Commission has attempted to refute them. But it does not offer any evidence in its attempts. The bold claims state the Codex was founded by these individuals because they had direct experience in designing population control mechanisms. But if it is true that Nazi war criminals were employed to construct such a thing, who employed them to do so? Well, the conspiracy theory deepens in that Codex Alimentarius is closely tied to something known as Agenda 21, also a United Nations program that's promoted as pursuing sustainability of global resources. And I've talked about Agenda 21 before on the show. But Agenda 21 is speculated by many as having a much more sinister objective. And here's an excerpt 
from the very mission statement of Agenda 21. It reads, quote, Effective execution of Agenda 21 will require a profound reorientation of all human society, unlike anything the world has ever experienced with a major shift in the priorities of both governments and individuals and an unprecedented redeployment of human and financial resources. This shift will demand that a concern for the environmental consequences of every human action be integrated into individual and collective decision-making at every level. Whoa! Rewind. Listen to that again. That is a direct quote from the Agenda 21 mission statement. The idea is that the global population at large, that's us, is responsible for negative impacts on the environment as well as the resource shortages we're facing. And thus, we need to be reorganized and governed, lest we destroy the planet. The Agenda 21 document goes on to state that its mandates, its mandates, will be implemented everywhere, even at the local community level. So, for example, it reads, quote, Each local authority should enter into a dialogue with its citizens, local organizations, and private enterprises to formulate a Local Agenda 21. Through consultation and consensus building, local authorities would learn from citizens as well as local civic, community, business, and industrial organizations and acquire the information needed for formulating the best strategies. End quote. What this says is that by studying and gaining information at the local level, those managing the Agenda 21 policies will decide for the rest of us on how best to proceed. Just think about that. Think about the implications of that. On the surface, it sounds like a necessary plan to organize, prioritize, and share global resources. But closer investigation, reading between the lines, it appears to be much, much more Assumptions are made that the general population is to blame for the looming shortage crisis we are about to face. However, statistics show that in fact the smallest percent of the global population, made up of the most wealthy nations, companies and individuals, are actually responsible for the most energy usage and having the greatest negative impacts on the environment. Yet this same group is the most active and interested in establishing the mandates spelled out in Agenda 21 where the general population at large, again, that's us, is held accountable and not themselves. Agenda 21 reads like a business plan where the majority is viewed as a wasteful liability that must be contained, controlled, and handled. And that, my friends, is indeed frightening. The conspiracy theorists claim that a large part in carrying out the mandates of Agenda 21 involves the forced implementation of genetically modified crops on a large scale. As unbelievable as it sounds, there is truth to these claims. Agenda 21 does strongly advocate the use of biotechnology as an integral and necessary part of its objectives. This is spelled out in the actual document, where more than an entire chapter is devoted to the subject. 
The United Nations views biotechnology as a means to achieving sustainability in the agricultural sector and uses its influence on the global stage to push for the speedy development and implementation of it, encouraging smaller nations to adopt GM crops. In short, this is all a very real thing that is being orchestrated by the UN in conjunction with international agribusiness. But getting back to the question of who is behind all of this, well, there are conspiracy theories for that too. Codex Alimentarius and Agenda 21 both originate within the United Nations. So naturally, the next question becomes, who controls the UN? Conspiracy theorists claim the UN is a front for the development of a one-world government that will control the globe. But how far out is this? I mean, we've heard about this before. Well, the United Nations came about at the close of World War II and is known to be a direct evolution of the League of Nations, which was wholly created and funded by the Rockefeller family. In fact, the Rockefellers chose the site for the UN headquarters in New York City, providing the property and funding the construction of the United Nations building itself. Now stay with me here. The Rockefellers built their empire by monopolizing the oil industry in the early 20th century, and their wealth became so great it impacted the entire economy of the United States and beyond. The Rockefellers were strongly connected to the German Rothschild family, who built their extreme wealth through the establishment of a banking dynasty originating as far back as the 1700s. It is said that the Rothschild family was behind the formation and funding of the Nazi regime. The theory goes that these two families formed an alliance having the common objective of controlling all global resources and populations spawning the idea of a one-world government. They are also known to support the practice of eugenics, the filtering out of those deemed to be genetically subordinate. The chilling fact is these ideologies can be verified through public statements and actions made by these families throughout the years. One of the most disturbing and poignant examples was the Holocaust, where millions were killed based on eugenic principles. But the more insidious form of eugenics can be found through biotechnology and the implementation of GM foods. So where does this come from? Well, we are told the United Nations is an international organization that aims to facilitate international cooperation through social progress, economic development, international security, and international law. They promote themselves and are outwardly promoted by others as being a reputable body that deals with peace, security, development, human rights, and humanitarian affairs. This image is consistently broadcast in the mainstream media through networks like CNN. But these networks are collectively owned by companies such as Time Warner and J.P. Morgan Chase Bank who have direct ties to the Rockefeller family. So the United Nations image that is projected to the public is not necessarily giving the full picture. If these claims are true, then the United Nations is actually built on principles that are not in the best interest of mankind. And it follows that any program within it claiming to be humanitarian should be looked at very carefully. Nonetheless, it is difficult to argue against these UN programs or the current slogans and advertisements put out by the chemical biotech industry because they have been craftily worded and promoted in such a way that to disagree makes one appear as anti-technology, anti-progress, or impeding virtuous humanitarian efforts. 
they are instilling in the public domain that genetically engineered agriculture is not only a good thing, but a vitally necessary thing that must replace existing methods in order for us to survive as a species. Another claim by pro-GMO groups is that erratic weather patterns make for unpredictable growing conditions, and many regions are experiencing more drought while others are experiencing much more rain. The end result, they say, is lower yielding crops and less GM seeds are adopted. And here again is where the conspiracy theory deepens even further and becomes more disturbing when we begin to talk about speculations that drastic changes in weather patterns may be intentionally instigated by the powerful corporations themselves, controlling the weather to force dependence on their GM seeds. As ridiculous as this theory sounds, it may not be so far-fetched. Control of the weather is not a new idea, but one that was first seriously attempted in the 1950s. Since then, experiments have been carried out, mostly for military purposes, that have investigated ways to bust up clouds to prevent rain and to seed clouds with chemicals to induce rain. There is speculation that powerful governments like the U.S., have been engaging in weather manipulation for years now through a technology called HARP, which focuses high-energy electromagnetic waves at regions in the atmosphere, more to induce global changes than regional. The fact that weather manipulation has been experimented with for decades should point to the very real possibility that corporations with enough financial power and governmental connections could feasibly do this for their own purposes which takes us a step further. Recently, the biotech agribusiness giant, Monsanto, purchased Climate Corporation, the premier weather data company in the world. Although Monsanto insists it is only interested in monitoring the weather to give farmers an advantage in planting and harvesting crops, could there be more to it? There is no doubt that Monsanto has profound connections within the U.S. government, and has the financial clout to pursue any business venture. But with the surprising billion-dollar purchase of a weather data company, it has raised suspicions about whether there is more to this picture. It is known that agricultural soils are showing more chemical components, such as aluminum, barium, boron, and arsenic, all known to be chemicals used in weather alteration. One of the primary new GM seeds currently being tested and produced by Monsanto are drought-resistant varieties. Is it a coincidence that several drought-stricken areas around the globe also have the same chemicals found in their soil that are used to induce drought conditions? Monsanto has not admitted to doing such a thing, but the facts point to a disturbing conclusion. Monsanto, in conjunction with the U.S. government, may be intentionally inducing drought conditions in certain regions to boost the sale and need for GM seeds. As incredible or impossible as that may sound for a corporation to do such a thing, we have to remember that Monsanto has already shown an incredibly frightening lack of restraint when it comes to tampering with natural processes. And it's not just Monsanto. They're not the only ones in the biotech business. But Monsanto has built an empire on the manipulation of genetic material to then place the stamp of ownership on it. They have engaged in the cover-up of toxic catastrophes where thousands of lives have been lost and damaged. 
and they continue to promote GM technology and the pesticides that go with them as completely safe when it is scientifically known they are not. They have explicitly stated that their end goal is to control all food crops on the planet. Now with the chemical evidence found in agricultural soil around the world, it appears they may be involved with weather manipulation as well. The words conspiracy or conspiracy theory have come to be associated with something negative that should be disregarded as crazy, overboard, dramatic, or just propaganda. However, time and time again, even though some of the details of a theory may not be correct, the overall underlying inference of such theories can be spot on, much to the chagrin of those trying to cover it up. Having said that, it is important to keep in mind that there is so much put out there that has no basis in truth. A rumor or conspiracy theory may be spun to distract from what is really going on. And that is why we should strive to educate ourselves as much as possible on the issues, weighing and comparing the factual information we know, some of which we discussed here in the show tonight, with the speculations being made. Somewhere in this study and examination, we can at least get beyond the conspiracy and to the truth, or at least much closer to it. One thing is certain. We now have a well-documented, factual history of the policies and practices used by the biotech industry. And by examining what we have learned from the past and comparing it to what we are witnessing in the present, we have a solid guide to where this frightening industry aims to take us into the future. So now we'll move on to a special segment of the show called The Listener's Voice, which is where folks out there have kindly taken the time to write into the website with their questions and comments, and to close each show of the program, I'll go through as many as I can. And we'll begin with uh, Krista Camwell. She writes in and says, Hello, I really like listening to the show. This is my first time writing in. I always learn new things listening through your broadcast, and then usually even more when I listen back to your archives. Keep up the great information, please. I've been paying attention to genetic engineering for some time now and read somewhere that most of the human genome is owned by a lot of different companies. I was wondering if you have any actual numbers on this. I think the whole idea of owning genes is totally wrong. How can it be legal for a company to own human genes? Wouldn't that mean they could own each of us in a way? Well, hi, Krista. Thank you so much for taking your time to write into the show, and I want to thank you uh, so much for your kind words and support uh, for what I'm doing here. Uh, it is a very interesting question you bring up, uh, and it is disturbing to an awful lot of people. How can it be okay for a business to own something that should be unownable? Uh, but let's look at the latest we know. Before June of last year, over 10,000 genes in the human genome were patented and owned by different companies uh, and, uh, and research labs. One of the most prominent was a company called Myriad Genetics, who owned patents on two genes that determined whether or not a woman would develop breast cancer. Now, this company didn't create, change, or do anything else to the genes except uh, look at them. But if anyone wanted to have a test for breast cancer done, they had to go through this company. So needless to say, they made a whole lot of money uh, charging insurance companies because of this monopoly. However, last year, the Supreme Court ruled that human genes could no longer be patented. They reasoned that since it was created by nature, it was off limits to patents. 
Now you might be wondering how this is any different from companies like Monsanto owning patents on plant genes. Well, the difference is that Monsanto introduces foreign genes into the genome of a plant that creates a new effect. So by a slim definition, this is ownable according to U.S. patent law. And this has been the crux of so many court battles so far. Uh, but the fact that the court ruled to outlaw the patenting of human genes should be considered a huge win. But meanwhile, there is still plenty of controversy concerning the rights of biotech companies over farmers and even the rights to own plant genes, uh, introduced or otherwise. Uh, so we'll see where that goes. Thanks so much for writing the show. And up next, we have a question from Alana Dunn. Uh, she writes in and says, I don't know if you'll see this, but since spring is coming and I'm getting ready to plant my garden, do you have any suggestions for vegetable seeds? I've seen hybrid seeds as opposed to regular seeds, as opposed to open pollination seeds, and everything else. It seems so complicated to choose what's best these days. I just don't know enough about it all to know if hybrid is really a secret word for GMO or what I should go with. Can you help me out with this before I go planting? Thanks. Well, hi, Alana. Thanks so much for your question. Uh, let me see if I can clarify it all a bit for you here. Uh, yes, it is the season for gardens and fresh fruits and veggies. Um, Here's what's available. There are heirloom seeds that have been passed down for generations, usually more than 50 years. And then there are hybrid seeds, uh, and these are seeds generated from plants that have been uh, crossbred. Non-hybrid or organic seeds are considered the most natural and purest form of seed anyone can find. Uh, you can save the seeds after each harvest and be assured they will grow the same every time. Um, and the open pollinated seeds you mentioned uh, are plants that are pollinated by insects, bees, birds, uh, wind, and other natural ways. Um, of course, I'd avoid all GMO seeds when possible, uh, which these are generally not available anyway to the individual gardener. Uh, but since the largest vegetable seed distributors are owned by Monsanto, I would really be uh, observant to what the label says. I hope that helps. Have a great spring and summer. And up next, we have a question from AJ. AJ writes into the show and says, Hi there, just a quick question for you. If you have time on your show, could you comment on GMO allergens? Do you happen to know if unknown allergens are made during the making of these GMO seedlings? Thank you very much. Well, hi, AJ. Thanks so much for writing into the show with your quick question. And let me try to give you the quick answer. When genes from one plant are inserted into the genome of another, allergens from the first will show up in the new plant. But it's not always so simple because anytime genes are put together in new combinations, uh, you know, during the process of, of creating GMOs, there will always be a potential for unknown and unexpected results. Uh, so in many cases, new unexpected allergens are formed, and there is really no good way, unfortunately, to anticipate these. And this means that once a GMO plant is made and put to market, there is still a chance that people will have allergic reactions uh, to it. You know, you would think that regulations on this uh, might be more strict, but uh, sadly, they aren't. Um, thanks so much for writing into the show. 
And with that, I've run out of time in this segment. If you would like your question or comment to be featured on the show, I would love to hear from you. Just pay a visit to the website at www.geneticcrossroadradio.com and follow the link to the listener's voice. Once there, just fill in the form and send me along your thoughts. I'll feature as many as I can during each broadcast. Your voice, it really does matter and will help make a difference in both the future of our food and our human health. This show is a conversation, and that's where all change begins. So let's get talking. And I also want to just tell you about the Facebook page for the series. If you are enjoying the show and would like to participate in some more interactive communication, I would love for you to come and give a like and join in at www.facebook.com slash Anna Kavanaugh Mad Science Genetic Crossroad. And you can also follow the show on Twitter at GMO Mad Science. And I'll hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Mad Science, The Genetic Crossroad. Please join me every Tuesday for more on GMO. On next week's show, that's Tuesday, April 1st, we'll continue our conversation with an episode named From Double Helix to Double Standard. Since the industrialization of our food supply, corporations have continued to push the limits of minimizing costs to maximize profits. Although GMOs make up a large part of this, in recent years there has been an ever-growing list of dangerous chemical additives to our food that are being approved by the FDA and USDA, dangerous chemicals that are outlawed in most all other countries. Why then are U.S. consumers exposed to these toxic substances and why are we not being told? It's time we talk about that and I hope you'll join me for next week's broadcast. If we destroy nature, surely nature will destroy us. For while we may hold dominion over nature, we do not possess its wisdom. Until next time, be well, be healthy, and be informed.